Who recognizes this man? Raise your hand high. Who recognizes this man? All right. Yeah, it was a while ago, wasn't it? <laughs> Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson. He was special counsel to President Nixon. And he was known as Nixon's hatchet man. Oh, and he earned that particular title. He was just ruthless with people. He said he had no moral compass. He was just nasty. When, when the Watergate scandal began to build, everybody had their eyes on Chuck Colson because he was known to be, you know, somebody who was very aggressive. And what happened was is that he was the first one arrested and charged for obstruction of justice. And so as he was waiting to go to trial, he began to think about his life and think about what was going on, where he was going. And so he talked to a lawyer friend who had just become a Christ follower. And this lawyer friend said to him, Chuck, you've got you to embrace Jesus Christ. You have to repent and believe in him. And later that night, Chuck Colson, sitting behind the wheel of his car, made that decision. Now, it got out that he made the decision. Of course, everybody thought, oh, same old story, right? Oh, you got Jesus now, so you want us to have more compassion on you. What was interesting is, is that they did not have a strong case against Colson. They really didn't. If Colson would be would have been his old self, he would have he would have beat that charge and not have any prison time whatsoever. But because the Holy Spirit was inside of him, he decided to plead guilty because he knew that he had done wrong and that he should be honest about it. So he pled guilty, and he was one to three years he got, and seven months is what he served. But he served longer than like Dean and Arkman, the, the guys who really were the, the master designers of the whole thing. And while he was in prison, as he interacted with these other prisoners and saw their life and saw their issues, he had such a deep burden to help these people, to help them to know Jesus. So after he got out of prison, he started a discipleship program for federal prisoners. And that grew eventually into to prison fellowship. And over that next 30 years, he went to be with the Lord in 2012. Over that next 30 years, he became one of the leading evangelical voices in the world. Remember this book? Anybody read this book, Born Again? Anybody out there? Oh, yeah, okay, Born Again. Now, wasn't that great? He told his story. And again, it was so impactful because he had been such a <laughs> rat 
And, and people just couldn't believe the change that came to his life. And then, of course, he was ministering in the prisons. Now, who would ever think that Nixon's hatchet man would become a worldwide leader of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And that's why those of us who are older think of him when we think of radical transformation I share that story with you today because we are going to study one of the most exciting stories in the book of Acts. Now, we've been going through our <clears throat> unfinished series for the last 12 weeks. Over the summer, we have taken passages in Acts. Our guest speakers did. And isn't it great just to be a part of a book study and we always encourage you to fully engage by reading the passages and doing your own study because I've loved the series because I love to tell great Bible stories. And this one is definitely going to be my favorite out of the book of Acts. As I was preparing this thing, I just got more excited and more excited. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, this is fit. I mean, People are really going to see some great biblical truths in Paul's story. So we start out in Acts 9-1, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Now, who was Saul in the first place? Well, let's look at this map here. Of course, you see Israel with Jerusalem at the bottom. Now, Saul lived way up in Tarsus, at the very top there, and he was uh, there for 14 years. Now, what was interesting is that the Greek Empire was ruling, and then the Roman Empire you know, overtook them, but in the, the Roman Empire, there still was a lot of Greek influence. And when Saul was living in Tarsus for that first 14 years of his life, he really learned the Greek culture. That was kind of a center of Greek thought and learning. So he got a thorough education about how Greeks, Romans thought. And then God brought him down to Jerusalem because his dad was a Pharisee. And he was going to train to be a Pharisee as well. A Pharisee was part of a, a religious sect within Judaism, and they were very, very strict you know. Uh, so he became a Pharisee. He stuttered, studied uh, under Gamel, which was one of the most well-known rabbis in that day. Even in uh, non-biblical sources, uh, we learn. I mean, he knew his stuff. And Saul was a person who was a leader. He was a passionate leader. He was a zealous leader. He was an incredible thinker. He was a learner. He was a writer. Wasn't that great of a speaker, interestingly enough, as we read scripture. Uh, but at the same time, this guy was loaded. A and so when he was reaching you know, that, that period of adulthood, that's when Christianity, of course, came on the scene. 
Jesus Christ came and died, and he was so angry. He was just filled with hatred because he wanted to destroy Christianity. He wanted to take it out. And so he was the leader, no doubt, in that day, uh, the leader of persecution against Christians. Now you also see Damascus uh, over there on the right side. We're going to talk about that today because that's where God encountered uh, Saul. So let's go back here. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Now, that idea of breathing threats and murder in the original language talks about breathing in. I mean, he was just consumed with this passion to persecute Christians. That was all he thought about. So he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belongings to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now there were three synagogues in Damascus, which meant that there was a large Jewish population. And also, he had heard news that many of these Jewish people had converted to what they called the way. That was a first a name that Christians had called them by their enemies. It's interesting, though, when you think about the way, some think uh, it was from what Jesus Christ said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It was also the way these Christians lived. I mean, their way was different. People knew they were different because of the love and the compassion that they showed to other people. They really stood out. And so people were wondering, what does it deal with these people? They live in a different way of life. Now, when they, uh, on Antioch later, uh, they had another name attached, uh, and it was Little Christ, right? Little Christ, like a mini-me. Little Christ. And, of course, that word is Christian. That's when they were named uh, Christians. But he was going up there. Uh, the high priest, he had the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body, of the Jews, and they made all the national decisions for the Jews, and there were 70 of them, which included the high priest. So what he really did is he got extradition papers to go up to Damascus, and he had the letters that said he had the power to bring all these Jews who had turned to Jesus down to Jerusalem to be tried by the Sanhedrin, and many of them were executed. So this man was greatly feared by other Christ followers. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? As you can imagine, Saul was <laughs> moving toward the Damascus, with great speed, and he had his whole, you know, whatever, army, uh, pe people that were helping him in, in this particular uh, uh, journey and task, and so they were surrounding him as he went, 
And then all of a sudden, this bright light just blew him on the ground. Now, we know that uh, in the Middle East, the sun is very, very uh, bright. But this was brighter than the sun, if you can imagine that. I mean, it was brighter than anything that we could imagine. And you read some scholars and say, well, Saul had an epileptic fit. Or he was struck by lightning. No! That with me was a kind of glory of God shining down upon him. Jesus Christ showed up in his life, stopped him in his tracks. And Jesus Christ said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul said, who are you, Lord? Now, we can tell he was uh, speaking to deity because of the, the word that was used. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, I wonder when I first read that, I said, no, he's not persecuting Jesus because Jesus is no longer on earth, right? But why was Jesus being persecuted? What we talked about last week was that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. I'm not the head of the church, no other pastor, no bishop, no pope, no whatever. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And we are the body of the church. So therefore, if the church is being persecuted, well, it's persecuting Jesus Christ. That impacts him. He feels that because he's a part of the body. He's a leader of the body. And when, uh, there's three different stories, uh, or three different accounts of this. Uh, one found in Acts 9. Uh, Acts 22 and Acts 26. So we learn some things from the other accounts. In Acts 26, we see, and when we had all fallen to the ground, so all of his companions fell to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. <laughs> when you read through the Bible and what? What in the world are the goads? Well, this is an illustration of a man uh, plowing the land, and he has his oxen, and uh, he's got that long stick, and that's a goad. A, a, a goad was a long stick, and he, he just kept on poking uh, the oxen to move them forward. Now, they didn't like that, so what they would do is they would resist. They would kick back against it, and then they would just get more of the poking and uh, Eventually, they'd get the idea, I've got to you know, do what this guy is saying. So that's what Paul was doing. Jesus Christ was trying to establish his church, and Paul was kicking against it. No, I will not let you establish your church. And Jesus is saying, what's the deal, Paul? Why are you so against me? Why are you against the church? Why are you persecuting? What is going on here? Then he told Saul, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Do you ever kick against the goads in your life? When Jesus Christ is trying to lead you in a certain way, and you don't want to go, 
and you keep resisting and kicking back and kicking back, and sometimes God will prod you and try to move you forward, but are you resisting God? Uh, what I really want to focus in on today, the main idea of what I want to communicate to you, is the question, is Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? What does it mean to be Lord of your life? Well, it means, is Jesus Christ the leader of your life? Do you live your life in such a way that I am here to live whatever Christ wants me to live? I am here to submit to Christ. He is the one who owns me now. I was bought for a price on the cross. And so every day, I'm looking for His will. I'm seeking to glorify Him in the way that I live. And, and, and everything centers around Him. I, I spend time with Him. Uh, I gather I'm part of a church family that helps me grow in my Christian faith. That's a question I want you to think about. Think about, are, is Jesus Christ your Lord? And what typically happens is a person becomes a Christ follower and they don't fully understand the issue of lordship. <laughs> uh, but as they grow, and we call that sanctification, all right, that's the process of becoming more like Jesus Christ, uh, again, following him, sanctification. So you've got justification, uh, you were justified at the cross, you were forgiven. Sanctification is this growth process till you die. And then glorification is when we're with Jesus. That's how it works. That's how it works. But the whole idea of sanctification is you constantly are submitting to God and you have him as your leader. He's at the wheel, one might say. Now again, we can never be perfectly under the lordship of Christ, but, but there's an attitude shift that takes it, place at some point after salvation where it, it's kind of a light bulb that goes on and says, wow, this really has changed my life. It's the way I view the world, my values. I want to live for Jesus. That's my main goal in life, not to live for me and my agenda and how I want to enjoy this life or feel satisfaction. That's not what I'm searching for. I'm searching to live for Jesus. That's what I'm seeking. And, and what I find is that there's a point when that, that light bulb comes on in a person's life. They receive that insight. And what they do with that insight is so critical because there are so many Christ followers who say, no, Jesus as my Savior is good enough. Yeah, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, and I'm not really going to the Lordship level. Because that really kind of stifles me, cramps my style. There are so many people living at that level. And if you're living at that level today, my challenge to you is to give serious thought to what we're talking about. Having Jesus Christ be Lord of your life. So, 
God tells Paul, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. <laughs> now you've got to remember that Saul was a leader. He was used to telling people what to do to accomplish his goals. So the whole idea of somebody else telling him what to do, well, that would kind of grate on him, right? But it's interesting, in Paul's life, it's just almost like an immediate shift that he, that he really does claim Jesus Christ as Lord. And just one particular instruction here. Maybe today uh, you're going through a stressful time and you don't know what to do and you want God just to kind of lay out a detailed plan for what's going to happen in your life in the next three years, let's say. I want to know so I can run the thing, right? I can't run my life if I don't know what I'm supposed to do. But so many times in the Christian life, God just gives us one instruction at a time. And so he tells this great leader, Saul, go into the city. And Paul might be thinking, okay, tell me a little more. <laughs> this is all new to me. I haven't talked to you before. But what does he do? He goes into the city. So if you are confused today, just ask God, what's the next thing I do in the midst? Maybe you, some problem has consumed you. And, and, and again, you're doing you know, gymnastics in your head, trying to figure out how you're going to solve this problem and move on with life. What you need to do is say, Jesus, I have no idea what's going on. I don't know what to do. Give me the next instruction and I'll follow you. And then you'll give me another instruction. So many times we get so overwhelmed and confused when we simply need to say, Lord, you're, you're my Lord, and show me the way, even if it's just step by step. Now the men who were traveling with Paul or Saul, that is, stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. You can imagine, first of all, this brilliant light. They hit the ground and they heard a voice, and as you study the different passages, I think it's clear that they heard a voice, but they didn't understand it. Paul was the only one who understood it at this point. And so they're thrown back. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him in to Damascus. Now, this was not Saul's plan, right? I mean, he envisioned himself with his team coming into Damascus and spreading fear and terror and him being the one that everybody didn't want to rob. But he was in control and he was going to arrest those people and he was going to march down to Jerusalem and haul them up in front of the Sanhedrin, and they would be punished. That's what he was thinking. But how did he enter Damascus? He was blind. 
He was blind. He couldn't see a thing. Excuse me. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so they led him by the hand and brought him. Okay, he's having to depend on one of his men. He, can't, he didn't even know which way to go. He, he doesn't know. He's got, how humbling, right? How humbling. And friends, we lay out our plans and things like that, and this is the way it's going to go, and all of a sudden, you know, God changes everything, and we really get ticked. We become very angry because, God, this is not the way it's supposed to be, but he has a different plan for us, right? A different agenda. And just accepting that is so important. Just accepting whatever challenges, wherever your life is going south, I mean, okay, I accept this, Lord. Show me what you want me to do. What's the next step? And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So here Paul had gone through this spiritual transformation. He'd seen Jesus Christ and then he was alone for three days. That must have been kind of strange, huh? I mean, he was always on the move, always, you know, getting things done. And there he sat for three days in the dark. Why do you think God did that? Well, he wanted to give Paul some time alone in order to think about all that had happened. Later we'll see that Paul prayed during this time. Yeah, I mean, when you're sitting there and you can't see, and <laughs> you're more likely to pray, right? You're more likely to say, hey. And, and you know what I think the cool, was, cool thing was? Was that he knew the Old Testament. He knew all the prophecies about the Messiah. And while he sat there, boom, 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 every passage came to his head, oh, yeah, and it was just like <laughs> the, the, the uh, doors were open, and he could finally see, yes, Jesus Christ was the Messiah. After he had been kicking against the goads and thinking this is the end of Judaism, he realized, no, this was just the beginning, just the beginning. I would encourage all of us. Uh, we're disciple-making family, and so we want to talk about the spiritual disciplines. One spiritual discipline is a discipline of solitude. Just getting away from everything. Just have your Bible there and spending time reading the Bible, listening to God, but really just slowing down the engines, turning down. Uh, your heart, and if it's just for a half hour, that's a first step, right? Preferably it's a morning or afternoon, uh, but everybody has challenges, especially when you have kids. Uh, but we need that because we just think if we continue to keep thinking, we're going to figure life out. And that's not going to happen. Life is too mysterious. So what we need to do is we need to get along with God. 
and listen. Listen for his voice and bring him our burdens and just slow it down. In fact, I included a website uh, in your program there, a great article on solitude. And of course, there's all kinds of great information on how to do that. But very important as a Christ follower is that brings Jesus Christ back to the center. Now, there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And he said, Here I am, Lord. Now, we know from another passage that he was uh, the spiritual leader for the Jews in Damascus. So he was right in the middle of this thing. He knew that Saul was coming, and he was talking with other leaders. You know, how do we respond to this? What do we do? And this is what Jesus says to Ananias in a dream or a vision. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Isn't this true about the love of God? I mean, Saul's sitting there in the dark, but God lets him know that there's a man named Ananias coming to give him his sight back. I don't know when he revealed that to him, but you know those moments, right? When you're just in the thick of it and all of a sudden God's mercy flows into your life and you go, wow, I understand now. Or, wow, I have energy now that I didn't have before. Or I have wisdom now. Experience that. That should be a part of your life. Uh, <laughs> it goes on to say, but Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who can call on your name. You can imagine Ananias listening to God saying, hey, I want you to go and see Saul. <laughs> Ananias kind of said, hey, just want to fill you in. You probably know, but I want to tell you what's going on here. That Saul guy, he wants to kill all of us, and he's come to Damascus to arrest us, to take us to Jerusalem, and who knows, execution, I don't know. I just wanted to fill you in, Lord, on that. That's really the last person I really want to go and have tea with at this particular time. <laughs> yeah, I can understand his concern. What does uh, Jesus say? But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Ananias, like, what? Him? That can't be. He's the worst possible candidate, Lord. But God had his agenda. And notice this, his three jobs. First of all, to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. You know why he was 14 years in Tarsus? was to learn how the Gentiles think, learn their culture, learn whatever they taught them in school, 
so that he would be prepared to come back and to be, uh, in a sense, the first missionary who went all around the world telling people, telling Gentiles about how Jesus loved them. And then the kings, it was interesting, if you study the book of Acts and other parts of Scripture, how many times does Saul or Paul appear before kings? Quite a bit, right? I mean, people and uh, the Roman emperors, uh, you know, uh, system there became Christ followers. And he even appeared before the Roman Empire, emperor, that is. All right. And then finally, the children of Israel. Finally, the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, this is very unique for Paul, right? I mean, has God showed you? Has he let you know how you're going to suffer next year or five years or ten years from now? You know, those of us who are parents are concerned for our kids about where this country is going and that they'll be under persecution. And we just need to give that to God. God will prepare them for that time. Our mind can go everywhere with that. Don't let it. Lord, I trust in you. You've cared for me. You're going to care for my children. But God was going to outline how much suffering he was going to experience. And I tell you what, Paul suffered constantly. You know, the funny thing about it is that this all happened in Damascus. And so he went out and started preaching and, and they wanted to kill him right there. There were people who were trying to kill him. I mean, right out of the gate. And they, you know, put him over the wall, right? To get him out of there. That was just his life. His life was always, who knows how many days I have left here to serve. And, and we could go through all the suffering he went through. But one of the things we need to remember is the Christian life involves suffering. If you love Jesus Christ, and if you have him as Lord of your life, now if you're just kind of a under-the-radar Christian, you're not going to suffer as much. But that's not God's will, right? You claim him as Lord and live for him as he guides you, you're going to suffer. Some of you, your, your families have disowned you because you're a Christ follower. That's, that's very difficult, isn't it? Or your family... Uh, you're the butt of jokes. Uh, they're always, you know, teasing you on the job. You know, people have a certain attitude towards you. You might not get a promotion. You might lose your job. I've heard many people talk about that because they were Christ followers. That's the whole gospel. Yeah, Jesus wants to bring great things into your life and have you lived life like it never has been lived before? But he said, you'll have trouble in this world. And a lot of pastors won't talk about that because well, that, just, that will discourage people. They don't want to come back to church if they're going to hear about that. Well, this is discipleship. We call it as we see it in Scripture. The good and the bad. So important for us to have that mentality. 
So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Spirit. So Ananias, no, no questions after what Jesus said. He embraces uh, Paul as part of the brotherhood, and, and he says, I'm here to re- help you regain your sight. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Something like scales, and this could be literal or figurative, but he could finally see the world as God saw it. Do you remember that when you first became a Christ follower? And you started to read the Bible and talk with other Christians. And then the Holy Spirit opened your mind. It's like, oh, we got a totally different deal going on here than I thought. (laughs) And isn't it beautiful that we know because of Jesus what this world is all about. And then he rose and was baptized. In Acts, what happened? Conversion, baptism. Conversion, baptism. Baptism. I was talking with one pastor friend, and he believes that uh, to become a Christ follower, you need to be baptized by immersion. And there's an argument for that, but we don't believe in that. I mean, once you come to Christ, you're saved, but you need to obey Christ in baptism. And Paul did it right away here. What a great example, huh? And I know baptism is a difficult issue. There are all kinds of questions and fears. And and I tell you, I know Pastor Rich and others, they do such a good job of helping you understand it, why it's so important. But some of you here have heard it all, and you're not doing it. And that's because Jesus Christ is not Lord of your life in that area. I'll do everything but that. No, I'm not going to do that. Let the Lord speak to you. Let this be the day. Say, I'm going to claim Jesus Christ's Lordship today by being baptized. Let us know about that. And he was taking food. He was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Can you imagine this time with the disciples, this Christ-centered fellowship? And, oh, we need each other, don't we? We need each other, and Satan is selling us a lie. Oh, you really don't need to be fully engaged in a church. You can kind of do your own thing. You can go here, go there, listen to this podcast, whatever. No. God has called everyone to be a member of a local church in Scripture. And we need it for so many reasons, but one of them is we need other Christ followers. So we're starting our small groups up. This fall, maybe you don't have that group of friends who encourage and support and challenge you. Well, go to a small group. We've got a lot of opportunities or become part of a ministry. Get other followers around you. That is the way that you grow. So God, Paul goes out to Damascus and he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He's the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, it is 
Is not this the time who made, oh, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for the purposes to bring them bound before the chief priests? <laughs> yeah, everybody knew about Saul. Everybody knew that he wanted to murder all Christians, and now he's proclaiming the gospel. And you can imagine, they were very skeptical. Okay, he's going to kind of draw us in here by preaching the gospel. And he's going to turn it loose and drag us to Jerusalem. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ and that Jesus Christ had miraculously changed his life. Oh, I wish I could have been one of those people. Just, I don't know how long it took people to really believe it. A week, two weeks. I mean, when Paul went back to the apostles, they didn't want to believe it either. No way. And Barnabas had to be the one who said, hey, listen, this is legit. He has been changed by Jesus Christ. He's the last person you would imagine. But friends, Jesus Christ can change anyone's life. He can change anyone's life. Don't you give up on your family. Don't you give up on friends. You continue to pray for them because Jesus Christ can change anybody. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this wonderful chapter. Oh, the story of the grace that you poured into Paul's life. Lord, and I pray for all of us as we ask that question today. Is Jesus Christ truly Lord of my life? And I'm going to spend time today reflecting upon that. Uh, I know you're the Lord, but again, I always have to be you know, looking at our hearts and examining them and being uh, sensitive to spirit terms of sin we might be struggling with. But my main prayer is that people here who've been flying under the radar, who just have enough Jesus to get by, would realize that that is not your will. And they are in sin. And you can't expect anything good to come your way if, if we're not honoring you as Lord. I pray they would make that decision. In Christ's name, amen.